This week on New Mexico in Focus, we're all about the election as we check in with journalists across the state. We're seeing much higher turnout and higher turnout by first time voters or voters who haven't been active for a while. Plus, the state struggles to push COVID case numbers down as doctors issue a scary warning. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. That warning from New Mexico's doctors and healthcare systems is that we can't sustain the rate of COVID infection without dire consequences for all of us. We'll hear from them later. We'll also talk to newspaper writers in Albuquerque, Farmington, Silver City, and Las Cruces as the election enters its final weekend. The line tackles both those big topics this week. We begin with the election. Welcome everybody to the New Mexico in Focus podcast edition. Today is Friday, October 30th, 2020, and I am Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at NMPBS. Holiday weekend coming up for those of you who get into the Halloween festivities. We hope you find a safe and happy way to celebrate with friends and loved ones in a socially responsible way. And that, of course, is because... COVID-19 continues to surge in New Mexico. We hit a grim milestone on Friday today with uh, more than 1,000 deaths so far attributed to COVID-19. And we continue to break case records uh, on an almost daily basis yesterday, over 1,000 cases, which was a new high. And uh, it is getting very serious. You're going to hear a lot about that in the show this week especially when it comes to hospital capacity. Before we dive into all of that, the other big news, of course, is Election Day coming up on Tuesday. But, of course, tons of people have already voted. You may be in that camp. We are breaking records for early voting left and right. Uh, Nearly half the state, as of the time we taped the show this week, had voted early. A huge new record for the state that includes early in-person as well as absentee voting, which a lot of folks are doing in a COVID-19 world. And some estimates were as high as 60% of eligible voters may cast their ballot before election day. We want to dive into what all that means. We've got a special line panel this week to help us do that. That includes UNM political science professor Gabe Sanchez, who's also Chief Researcher for Latino Decisions, a polling uh, group that uh, does a lot of important research around elections and other things for sure. Also from UNM Political Science Department, we have Dr. Christine Sierra. She is a professor emerita there at UNM and a friend of the show. We always love it when Christine comes on. Rounding out the group, Trip Jennings, editor of New Mexico In-Depth, who've done a lot of uh, journalism around the elections, and uh, Tripp always has a lot of great insights. So we want to dive right into sort of breaking down the early voting and what Election Day may look like, including a couple of Republican lawsuits around, especially absentee voting processes. So let's kick it over now to host Gene Grant and the line panel. (music) 
New Mexicans are voting in record early in absentee numbers. Already, the state's turnout has already topped 50 percent. That's a tally that could approach 60 percent even before Election Day. There's a lot that plays into turnout. So here to sift through it all is our line opinion panel. We've got Trip Jennings from New Mexico In-Depth. Another guest we're always glad to see is Christine Sierra. She holds the title of Professor Emerita from the UNM Political Science Department. And we welcome back UNM Professor Gabriel Sanchez. Among his many appointments, he is the Director of Research for Latino Decisions. Always good to have all you guys here. Now, we've heard from a number of people that conventional wisdom surrounding high early turnout favors Democrats. But Gabe, we're in a different world now, meaning Friday night going into next Tuesday. What's your sense of how this all plays out? And um, specifically, who turns out where, when, and for what reason? Yeah, great, great to see you, Gene. Great conversation. Great to see Christine and Tripp. Um, I hope everybody's well out there. So yeah, I'll yeah. jump right into it. Conversation. This has been the election of our lifetimes, and New Mexicans clearly are reflecting that in their turnout numbers. I think we're now in the conversation of potentially seeing a million New Mexicans turn out in this election. Just ponder that for a minute. Wow. Driving that enthusiasm. Uh, top of the ticket, obviously, President Trump is arguably the most polarizing political figure, at least of my lifetime, where he generates a ton of enthusiasm among his base. And you're going to see Republicans turn out in large numbers on Election Day, but obviously is a major mobilizer for Democrats. So he's pushing a lot of the turnout. Our polling across the country suggests the number one issue on the minds of voters is, is COVID-19 relief, right, and, and addressing the pandemic. So you've got that. That's fueling a lot of energy and enthusiasm. And I think really importantly, but not talked about enough, is the institutional dynamics that are in play in this election. Because of COVID, New Mexico, like many other states, have made voting much more accessible than we ever have, at least in my lifetime, giving folks more access to mail-in ballots. You're seeing that reflected in the numbers. So I think all of those things, right, are generating a level of turnout that we just not have seen. Um, I think, you know, to answer your question about what are we seeing in the numbers right now, Democrats have a huge advantage, particularly in the in-person early vote. Mm -hmm. Roughly 95,000, 100,000 vote advantage. I think Democrats are really excited about that. But our polling has consistently said that Republicans much more likely to wait until Election Day and are going to vote in person, primarily because they're not afraid of getting sick with COVID-19 uh, from going to the polls to vote. So Democrats out there, yes, you're excited about your lead, but we're going to see that that lead shrink on Election Day. The multi-million dollar question is, are there enough votes out there for Republicans to make up the difference? Good point there. Hey, Tripp, you know, every election we hear about uh, these so-called new voters in quotes. But, you know, are there really that many new voters out there? I mean, what do the numbers show and how impactful might they be if it is a sizable group? You know, I, I, I have not seen a lot of numbers around new voters. I, mm -hmm. I have anecdotal stuff that I can talk to about. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure that Gabe and, and Christine can talk more uh, uh, thoroughly about this. I will say this. I, I have a 21-year-old, and I know some of his friends, and uh, they're voting. I mean, they're, th 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 this is something that has grabbed their attention. Mm -hmm. um, and I see that uh, in, among friends in other states who have young ones uh, who are now voting. Um, I think that uh, I saw a story in, in, um, uh, nationally about young people turning out at greater numbers. At the same time, I think that one has to be you know, cognizant that President Trump turned out new voters uh, in 2016. Um, I think there's a lot of folks who are going to be turned out on all sides because, as Gabe said, this is the election of our lifetime. I've never seen anything like this, and I lived through 2000. Mm -hmm. uh, it, all of us have, and it's, <laughs> it's striking. It's interesting, isn't it? Christine, you know, the Republican Party this week, uh, not this week, uh, 
earlier filed two lawsuits, but this week, one over access to poll watchers and the other over ballot drop box security. The court refused to hear the first. And what's the significance of that? Does that is there a bounce for New Mexico with that decision? Well, what I would say is that it puts it in the context of party partisan politics uh, struggling over uh, influence in the election because what it's about is the GOP in New Mexico essentially wanting to suggest, as one of the GOP spokespersons said, as a result of that court decision, uh, was that uh, people were going to be disenfranchised, uh, worried about the integrity of the election, and that's uh, putting casting suspicion on the process. Right. Uh, I'm not sure they really thought that they would win. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really challenging the Secretary of State in the process of uh, having GOP challengers observe the absentee ballot uh, process. And uh, the Supreme Court, our state Supreme Court struck that down. But basically, the uh, Steve Pierce is chair of the uh, Republican Party and the spokespersons, the messaging is clear. It's part of their strategy of to decline participation or at least cast doubt on the validity of the results. I would add that that Supreme Court was the, the justices who ruled on uh, denying the GOP its, uh, its position were two Democrats and Judith Nakamura, who is a right. well-respected Republican on that Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So the GOP claim that this was a partisan move, a play against the GOP doesn't quite hold. I think that is, it really, it really makes it very bare and glaringly in, in inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Gabe, let me get to something you follow, obviously, quite closely. You study the Latino vote, which we know is not a voting block like so many used to think it was. But what's motivating Latino voters this year and how do those issues translate into uh, behavior at the polls and in the voting booth? Well, I think for the Latino electorate, mm -hmm. um, it's important to note that although in New Mexico, um, we haven't seen the Latino population unfortunately impacted, at least in terms of health outcomes by COVID-19, but across the country in every single state they are. Right. So COVID-19, both in terms of the direct health implications, but primarily the economic. More Latinos have lost their jobs than any other racial and ethnic group in the United States, including here in New Mexico, because of COVID-19 and the recession associated with it. So that's on the, the front of the minds of voters, but immigration continues to be an important issue, particularly for segments of the population that are in mixed status families. And as we were talking about new voters, a huge segment of the Latino population here in New Mexico and nationally are new voters simply because of their age, right? I think the Latino population has such a huge concentration of eligible voters who are under the age of 30. Right. And for those folks, it's criminal justice reform and police brutality that we're seeing in our data as the number one driver that's getting them to the polls. So all of those things are, are, are really reflecting the huge numbers of turnout we're seeing among Latinos. Our data suggests that primarily young Latinos much more likely to say they're gonna vote on election day. So a big question is, will all of those folks, a lot of them young people, new voters, will they actually maintain their energy enthusiasm on election day and turn out at the high numbers that we're hoping that they do? Mm. Tripp, I understand you had a talk with the Secretary of State's office earlier today. Do you have some numbers that you've uh, caught your ear and caught your eye? 
Yeah, she 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 had a media briefing for you know journalists who were mm-hmm. uh, you know wanting to prepare for election day, and and as Gabe said, you know, uh, eight hundred thousand probably they are pre- I think predicting for early voting absentees. To, it was six hundred sixty thousand as of this morning between early votes and um, absentees, mm. um, and there are three hundred seventy poll watchers, you know, uh, around the state. Uh, people are gearing up on that. Um, you know, we have some other numbers. I'm scrolling through. Um, there are about ninety-two thousand outstanding absentee ballots. This is this is hmm. a, a serious business. As, as of today, they may come in, uh, but you know, New Mexico is not a a, a postmark state. Uh, election day seven p.m. is the deadline for being able to count ballots. Right. So, so you know, there is, people are watching that number. the The number of uh, outstanding absentees. Uh, some people may have just not voted. Some people uh, may have mailed them in, and they'll make it in. Um, but you know, it, it is sort of a striking uh, uh, situation right now. I did some analysis last. It was back of the envelope analysis, but mm-hmm. I think the previous record, and I, uh, Gabe or Christine can can check me on this. But early voting absentees was like 533,000 in a previous election, and we're already at 660. Isn't that something? Uh, that wow. is, it's, uh, it's, it's stunning to be a part of this or to cover this and be a part of this election, this U.S. election. Good way to put it. And that's as of Thursday morning, uh, right. Friday night. Those numbers may change a little bit. Christine, go ahead. I heard you saw you raise I your just hand there. To add that, that uh, as, as a political scientist who taught American politics and encouraged young people to vote, I'm frankly just delighted with the increase in numbers, not, and not only in our state, but across the country. Mm-hmm. But of course, there is also tension around uh, how many people are voting, but how they're voting. And Gabe made reference to this. We seem to have a, a, a tension between uh, early absentee ballots being cast uh, versus election day. Uh, and I understand that the Republican Party has been pushing election day voting. So Gabe is right that we will anticipate the margin of victory shrinking between the two parties. Uh, what, where that might actually matter in New Mexico, or at least here in Bernalillo County and Albuquerque, is some state legislative races. Ah. Where, uh, uh, we're looking at Republicans showing up to make up the numbers that they are behind mm-hmm. in terms of absentee ballots cast by Democrats. Mm-hmm. So I know that some of the Democratic Party candidates are a bit concerned about that, p- perhaps seeing themselves right now at an advantage, but that could vanish pretty quickly or shrink pretty quickly depending on how people choose to show up. That's a good point there. Glad you got that in. Hey, Gabe, you know, obviously we're, we're I, I think any smart person realizes at seven o'clock on Tuesday night or 7.01, you know, Pacific Coast, we're not going to have a, a winner declared. So how do we, how do we manage what's going to happen either on Wednesday, a day after that, a week after that? We, we really don't know. We know some states have up to nine days to count, you know, mail-in stuff after the after election day. How should we approach the after here? What what would give us the integrity to trust what we've gotten in our vote? You know, I will say we've actually started polling on this mm-hmm. across the country, and a large segment of the electorate is very concerned 
about not knowing the election outcome and that potentially leading to transition of power challenges and a lot of these decisions being made by the courts. So there is a high level of concern. Um, what we've tested is some positive messaging that hopefully decrease people's stress. And what we do is just remind folks, right, this has happened before. Uh, my first election as an eligible voter and really being engaged in and get out the vote efforts was 2000. And mm. those of us that lived through that recall that we've been here and we've done that. Our election system is designed to be able to tackle these issues. And just reminding folks, yes, it will be unfortunate if, if we don't wake up the day after the election and know the outcome. And we're talking about this afterwards, but our system is capable of handling that and, and making sure that there's an, an integrity issue in terms of the overall outcome. I think what we're stressing is, hey, we'd rather take some time and get it right than try to push the issue and potentially have a contested election. That's right. Um, thing I'll say is, you know, the easiest thing, and this is primarily for, for Democrats who feel like they've got a lead, is get your people out to vote. If the, the victor, uh, victory margin is large enough, none of this actually becomes relevant. So I think a lot of it will just depend on what the turnout at the end of the day on election day looks like. Good point there. Have to wrap it up there because we want to get to a series of interviews we did with journalists around the state as they cover key issues and races. NMIF producer Matt Grubbs spoke with Albuquerque General Capital Bureau Chief Dan Boyd about broader trends in the election, as well as key races in the state's largest city. Doing something a little special this election year as we're just days away from the elections, as we've already mentioned. We're going to check in with reporters both here in Albuquerque and around the state and get to a bit of a primer about what races to look for, some of the last-minute maneuverings, and just uh, what uh, is going to take shape as we start to see election results come in when they do come in. And we're going to kick things off first off with Dan Boyd. He is the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Albuquerque Journal. He sat down via Zoom with Matt Grubbs this week, our senior producer, to talk about some of the key races as well as those Republican um, legal challenges about absentee uh, voting and the certification of those absentee ballots. Um, that was a, one of the challenges they made about whether or not poll monitors should be able to see the first step of that. And earlier this week, the Supreme Court ruled that they were not going to even take the issue up, that it was not a problem. Um, the counter argument on a lot of this is that that would involve poll monitors seeing um, some confidential information, including partial Social Security numbers. And basically, the Supreme Court, by not taking it up, said that it was appropriate for poll monitors to not be allowed into that part of the process. Put a pin in that. It may not be a done issue just yet. State Republican Party Chairman Steve Pierce and the party indicated they have talked to the Department of Justice about this issue already. We'll see if anything comes about uh, around that. The other issue has to do with um, drop boxes and whether or not they were labeled correctly. Uh, so really a logistical question. The Secretary of State reissued her uh, guidance on that in uh, Guadalupe and Hidalgo County, and uh, basically then the case was dropped. So um, there's a lot of debate over that. We heard some of that in the line panel as well, but um, we're going to hear some more now from Dan Boyd of the Albuquerque Journal. Dan Boyd, thanks for spending some time with us. In the primaries, we saw this narrative of a lot of moderate or more conservative Democratic senators being ousted by progressive opponents. How does that play out in the general election, do you think? 
Yeah, I, I think we'll see whether those progressives can, um, you know, win those seats against Republican challengers um, in next week's election. Uh, and, and I think it really will shape kind of the Senate's been kind of dominated by this kind of um, centrist coalition of Republicans and moderate Democrats. And, and I think we could really see a, a very different looking Senate come January. Um, there'll be some new leadership positions open. Uh, and that could really have an uh, effect on some legislation that's been stalled in recent years and hasn't been able to get through the Senate. What does that do to um, to senators who probably have a safe seat, um, but were kind of near that coalition, folks like uh, Joseph Cervantes and 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 other people who had been so influential? Yeah, I think it could certainly put a little more pressure on them, uh, knowing that there might not be the backstop in Senate Finance Committee, for example, where John Arthur Smith has been the chairman and then his stopped a lot of bills there. So I think some of those senators could face a little more pressure, a little more um, you know, lobbying from pro progressive groups to kind of go along with some of this legislation. Um, but certainly I, I wouldn't expect, you know, there will still be some of those moderate voices um, like Senator Pete Campos and Senator Cervantes, you mentioned, um, you know, likely will win a reelection, both of them. So I think that will still be there, but it won't be in the same numbers or kind of the same strength that it's had in past years. Okay. Uh, in, in Albuquerque, there are some seats that haven't been in play for years um, that you're looking at. What are those? Yeah, we're tracking a few, um, a few Senate seats in Albuquerque in particular, uh, three that are currently held by Republicans, one by Senator uh, Sander Rue, uh, one that's held by Senator Candace Gold, and one by Senator Bill Payne, who's actually stepping down this year and not running for reelection. Uh, interestingly, all three of those districts, uh, Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump four years ago. So I think Democrats see those as opportunities to, you know, to maybe win those seats and, and kind of following in the template of uh, two years ago when a lot of Democrats defeated incumbent Republicans in state house races. We'll see if that same kind of tide um, can, can also spread across the Senate. And, and if so, you know, it'll really turn Albuquerque more blue and could uh, turn the Senate even bluer. We've seen that um, certainly down south as Las Cruces has kind of grown more blue and, and, and more Democrat over the years. Um, in terms of the, the demographics, um, when you guys do the journal poll, I know you look at that with Brian Sanderoff. Is, right. is Albuquerque turning more blue? I think certainly it is. I mean, um, the question will be how blue and especially I think kind of the wild card this year with turnout appearing so high, um, you know, who that benefits. I mean, uh, the conventional wisdom would be that might help the Democratic candidates, but um, you know I, I think some of these Republicans are fairly moderate and, and are well known, so certainly well financed as well, and, and they're making uh, certainly a strong bid to try to keep those seats. So I, I expect those races to be close, but I do think you know Albuquerque, uh, like other urban areas, is shifting further to the left, and we're certainly seeing that reflected here in New Mexico. You talked about sort of the, the loss of that bulwark of moderate, um, moderate Democrats in the Senate who sometimes would join together with Republicans. What does that do um, to policy? Uh, I know you're looking hardcore at the election right now, but um, as you look at the next session, some of the things that uh, the progressives have been pushing, um, does that make them more likely to pass? Yeah, I think, I mean, depending on what happens uh, in the election, I think certainly it could open the door for something like uh, marijuana legalization, um, you know, abortion, uh, repealing an old anti-abortion law that's on the books. Those kind of things could be in play, even a, a measure about the permanent fund, taking more money from that for early childhood. Um, I do think, you know, it, it could end up being a little more like the House where it, it's a little more partisan. I mean, the Senate's been very 
kind of prided itself on its congeniality and um, not a lot of uh, personal disagreements. And I think we could see a little more politicization, you know, polarization on both sides in the Senate, kind of the progressives and more conservative Republicans based on those primary results you mentioned. And, and that could lead, you know, to some of these uh, issues being kind of forced through the Senate, you know, which we haven't always seen in the past, but kind of on a more partisan uh, party line votes. There's a, a lot at stake um, when you describe sort of how everything could play out. Uh, we've seen, um, we're talking on, on Tuesday, and we've seen Republicans already file two high profile lawsuits uh, against county clerks and the Secretary of State. Can you explain a little bit um, what's behind those in general? Um, any specific things that you're noticing there? Yeah, I think this is um, probably not totally unexpected. I mean, just given the unique nature of this year's election cycle and, and the huge um, deluge of absentee ballots that we've seen. Uh, so Republicans are challenging kind of a new provision that was enacted during the special session this summer, kind of whether their poll watchers can observe as, as uh, poll workers are opening these absentee ballots. And those ballots do include a voter signature and the last four digits of their social, social security number. So a little bit of, uh, you know, security issues at play there and exactly how much of the process can poll watchers um, watch. That's one of the lawsuits. The other one kind of has more to do with these ballot drop boxes and kind of the procedures, you know, for a voter who wants to do absentee, but then just drop it off in person. So some of these things are new, new um, laws, new rules that are on the books and being put to the test for the first time. So I think there is going to be some, some friction and, and some tension about exactly how they're being implemented. Sure. It was interesting. The, the second lawsuit that you talked about, the one with the ballot drop boxes, that seemed to be focused on Taos and Guadalupe County. And if you look at political performance, those are two of the most democratic um, counties in the state. What is it that you think Republicans um, might hope to gain? Certainly, they can't have an expectation of, of winning local races there. It wouldn't seem. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't think so either. And I don't know exactly the specifics in those two counties, but I think there's a you know, a concern, or this could even be laying the groundwork for some um, future appeals or, or maybe some, you know, uh, concerns on about how this election is being handled and carried out by election officials. There is kind of these certain procedures about the ballot drop boxes. Um, but as you mentioned, they're both fairly rural, um, largely Democratic counties. And, you know, we're not talking about uh, Bernalillo or Doniana counties here. So, uh, and I think, you know, part of it, these county clerks are probably have limited staffing in some of these more, um, you know, smaller counties or, or less populated counties. So trying to follow the letter of the law, but also kind of making it work uh, on a practical level in some pretty far flung places. Sure, sure. So just kind of getting on the record with some of their objections before the yeah. um start. To I think that's of part of this. Sure. Hey, we just have uh, about a minute left. I know um, the journal is looking to do uh, another poll before the election. Is that right? That's right. We'll be doing kind of a, a final poll, um, be coming out this weekend, looking at the congressional races, the Senate race, and the presidential race. Um, but this will be kind of a snapshot of where we're headed come Tuesday and what to maybe expect. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to that. And Dan, thanks so much for making yourself available as you kind of keep your finger on everything happening around the state. You bet. Thanks again for having me on. And Matt continues his tour around the state with journalists working hard this election season, as always. We're thrilled, especially in a Zoom world. One of the great things is it becomes a little easier to get a hold of these hardworking folks and find out about the reporting they are doing. 
what races they are paying attention to. So we've got a good group that covers a large swath of the state. Hannah Grover is at the Farmington Daily Times up in San Juan County, where there is a constitutional amendment that will have a great impact, especially on that part of the state that has to do with uh, changing, potentially changing the way PRC commissioners are selected. Right now, they are elected positions. This constitutional amendment would have them be appointees. And the PRC definitely involved in the Energy Transition Act, which will mean the closing of the power plant up in Farmington. So this is a big issue for them. We talked to her about that, as well as some of the local races up there in the Four Corners area. Follow that up with Jeffrey Plant. He is at the Silver City Daily Press. Uh, Some really interesting races down there, not to mention CD2, that hard-fought contest uh, between Sochil Torres Small, the Democrat, and Yvette Harrell, the Republican. Uh, Lots of great information there from Jeffrey. We round things out with Algernon Diamasa of the Las Cruces Sun News, where, again, there's some important and key legislative races on the state legislature, as well as his thoughts on CD2. Uh, and so right now, here again is senior producer Matt Grubbs with some interviews with local reporters. Hannah Grover, government reporter with the Farmington Daily Times. Thanks for taking a, a few minutes to talk with us about what's happening in your corner of the state. One of the big things um, that we've discussed going into this is the PRC amendment that everyone statewide is going to see on their ballot. Um, just briefly, it would turn that into an appointed commission as opposed to an elected commission, and it would drop the number of commissioners from five down to three. Um, Up there in the northwest corner of the state, how do people feel about this? Well, you know, it's a, there's a lot of people who are very concerned about this amendment. Um, It could potentially put more qualified people at the PRC. I know that that has been a concern up here. I've I personally started following the PRC closely in 2016 during the AV water investigation. And there were times we would be watching the PRC meetings and it looked like there were commissioners sleeping during the meetings. And at other times it looked like there was infighting um, between two of the commissioners over who was going to be running the meeting or anything like that. So there are people who feel that it should be an appointed position. And then there are people who are afraid that we're a rural area up here. We may not have as much voice if they take it away from being elected by district. And, sure. and we have and a power plant. Absolutely, yeah. That's, I, I wanted to get into that, the San Juan Generating Station. Um, that's a huge economic driver for your part of the state. Yeah, it's um, one of, we have these really high paying jobs there and lots of them are connected to this mine and the power plant. And if it goes away, it will devastate the economy. Um, It's the tax base for that part of the county. And then it could potentially be hit once again with the Four Corners power plant just a few years later. So we have major issues up here that the PRC decides upon. And our electric utility is not regulated by the PRC, both Aztec and Farmington are municipal owned electric utilities. So 
we don't really have a voice as rate payers with, in terms of the PNM stuff with the San Juan generating station, but we can, our elected officials have intervened because it's located here in the area. So they've spent a lot of money advocating to keep this plant open and it's highly invested here. How do people up there in Northwest New Mexico feel about potentially losing a, a native voice on the PRC with Commissioner Teresa Vicente Aguilar? She definitely does advocate for the native population and she is always keeping them in the forefront of discussions. We really have only had two representatives on the PRC since the 1996 amendment created it. It's been Teresa Vicente Aguilar and Linda Lovejoy trading off seats. And it's always decided in the Democratic primary. So there is a group up here, the more conservative crowd, that doesn't necessarily feel the most represented there. But it, we definitely have always had a strong Native voice representing us. When we were setting up this interview, you talked uh, about that part of the state being very conservative and a lot of the races are decided in the Republican primary. Uh, one of the races that you'll be watching is Senate District 3, which is Shannon Pinto. Um, and she actually has a, a challenger, um, a Republican, Arthur Allison. Uh, both of those names are familiar to people. It's an interesting district that Shannon represents because that is one of our heavily Native American districts. It's a district that includes both San Juan County and McKinley County. So it's one that could go either way. Sometimes that area will vote Republican and other times it will vote Democrat. And a lot of it depends. Both of them have name recognition in that district. So it will be an interesting race to watch to see which one of them is able to best convince the voters that they should represent them in the next couple of years. Sure. What's voting been like up there? Are a lot of people voting early absentee? Yeah, yeah. We've had really high voter turnout, um, unusually high early and absentee voting turnout. We're almost at the numbers that we had during the 2018 election, uh, all voting in the 2018 election. So it, it's been busy. Hannah Grover with the Farmington Daily Times, thanks so much for your time. Thanks. Jeff Plant with the Silver City Daily Press. Thanks for taking a few minutes. Um, you've got a couple really interesting races down there. If we could, let's start with the Senate. Um, Senate seat uh, 28, I believe, which was um, one of those uh, progressive versus more moderate Democrat battles during the primary. What does that look like now for the general election? Uh, that's right. Saya Correa Hemphill is a relative political neophyte who has uh, she beat Gabe Ramos, uh, the sitting Democratic senator who was appointed by Governor uh, Lujan Grisham uh, in 2000, late 2018, 2019. Uh, she beat him in the primary and is now running against uh, Republican James Jimbo Williams. He goes by Jimbo. And that is a, that's a, a, a race that is, is completely divided along party lines and has gotten very uh, down and dirty, actually. The, the campaign mailers never stop in mailboxes around here. I bet, I bet. Um, it's a 
It's a Democratic district, at least by construction. Um, do you feel like Jimbo Williams is making some inroads? He has uh, gone to bat for the for the agricultural community and has a lot of support uh, in in the in the agricultural and, and ranching community here. And his his campaign is uh, more or less along Republican lines. He is uh, against repealing the 1969 state abortion restrictions, for example. He says he wants to give a voice to the voiceless. Uh, and Sayakrea Hemphill, on the other hand, is is claiming that uh, Jimbo is is he stands against women. Now, Jimbo uh, Williams, he uh, right out of the gate almost accused uh, Korea Hemphill of defrauding the public education department when she was employed by Silver Consolidated Schools. Uh, the, the story there is that she was on unpaid family medical leave taking care of her uh, disabled son and looked for a, for a part-time job to pay the bills. She was uh, terminated uh, when the superintendent then found out about this. And Korea Hemphill never pursued a wrongful termination uh, case, although she did, she did say that she could have. And uh, Williams, on the other hand, started campaigning, uh, sending out campaign mailers that claimed Korea Hemphill defrauded the education department. And it just, it just went sort of down into the mud from there. Sure, sure. Um, hard fought. Uh, another one that you're watching sounds like Rebecca Dow and a familiar opponent for her um, over in a TRC seat. That's right. Uh, the District 38 uh, House race here, Karen Whitlock, the Democrat, has run against Dow. This is the third time she's run against Rebecca Dow. And uh, the same issues have come up, I guess, in previous uh, races for this seat. And Dow has a lot of support across the, uh, the counties that that district represents. But uh, Whitlock has, has made this, this race less about issues and more about negative campaigning. She has accused Dow of ethics violations and in fact filed a, a, a complaint with the State Ethics Commission, which of course is a relatively new body that can only uh, investigate and take up ethics violations that happened after July 1st, uh, 2019. Now, Whitlock filed this complaint, immediately released the complaint to the media. Uh, otherwise it would have remained secret because all ethics commissions matters are totally confidential. And since then it's been kind of a tit for tat. Rebecca Dow, she filed a motion to dismiss this complaint with the ethics commission which of course does have a blackout period and can't technically decide on a complaint uh, within 60 days of an election. And in her motion to dismiss, uh, Rebecca Dow launched her own accusations against Whitlock, claiming that she knew that the accusations in the complaint were false, so she lied under oath. Uh, these two have been just going back and forth with the negative campaigning on this. Um, meanwhile, the issues are, are are relatively common wedge issues. Again, abortion, um, what to do with the New Mexico unit fund money that uh, was previously to be spent on a diversion for uh, getting access to surface water in the Gila River. That project, of course, has been basically killed by the 
New Mexico Interstate Stream Commission, and there's about $75 million in the unit fund that could also be spent on regional water projects. Uh, candidates on the Democratic side in just about every race uh, here, they favor spending that money on regional water supply projects, conservation projects that would improve efficiencies with uh, uh, ditch associations and that sort of thing. There's a wide range of really shovel-ready projects that, that could benefit from that money. Meanwhile, on the Republican side, just down the line, those candidates, uh, in, including uh, Dow and um, uh, James Williams, they really want to stay after that 14,000 acre feet that is part of the Arizona Water Settlements uh, Act and, and really pursue that. And it's, it's been shown that that is probably infeasible, but it's just, a, it's one of those issues that there's just no middle ground on. Sure, sure. And it's one of those that, that persists. Jeff Plant with the Silver City Daily Press. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Algernon Damasa with the Las Cruces Sun News. Thanks for taking a few minutes to join us. Uh, you are in the heart of a lot of really exciting races to watch. Um, one of them seems to be uh, the race to replace Senator John Arthur Smith, who lost to a more progressive candidate in the primary. Where does that race stand right now? This is probably the most suspenseful uh, contest in the state legislature, just because um, this was represented since 1989 by a conservative Democrat, John Arthur Smith, very powerful longtime chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. This is also a really large district. This district encompasses Hidalgo, Luna, Sierra, and part of Doña Ana County. It's a large district. And it was represented first by Senator Smith for so many years, and before him, it had been represented for decades by Ike Smalley, who was also a conservative Democrat. The Republican Crystal Diamond is making a very strong case that she wants to take John Arthur Smith's mantle as a conservative representative, whereas Naomi Martinez Para, the Democrat, is running unabashedly as a progressive. And so she's really looking to take that district um, uh, a little bit more, I guess, to the left. It's an interesting district, like you said, for its size. Um, the fact that there are so many, uh, I remember back on, on primary night, you look at all these different precincts that, that can be reporting and, and they all have a very different um, uh, sort of makeup. When you look at what the state legislature intended with redistricting, it's a district that definitely has more Democrats than Republicans, but isn't afraid to vote Republican, especially in presidential elections. Does it still kind of feel the same now, 10 years later as when it was set up uh, last time we did redistricting? There has been a drift in some of the voting habits, um, a little bit more towards Republicans, a little bit more conservative, although this is uh, also the area where Deming's Candy Sweetser, another conservative Democrat, seems to be popular and have an advantage over uh, the Republican challenger, Scott Chandler. Um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a rural district. It's a district down near the border. And it's a district where there's um, high unemployment in Hidalgo and Luna counties. And the, but the other thing also is that turnout has been a factor. And this is a year where uh, we're seeing much higher turnout 
and higher turnout by first time voters or voters who haven't been active for a while. And the conventional wisdom is that sometimes those are the voters that skew democratic, but this is also a year where we're seeing enthusiasm by the base that supports President Donald Trump and, uh, and a state Republican party that's uh, really coming out swinging this year. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a place where you have a really interesting ticket. You've got one of the one of the most closely watched congressional races in the country as Xochitl Torres Small um, takes on Yvette Harrell again. Uh, it seems like no one really knows where that race is going to go. How does it feel to you? I wouldn't call it. I mean, uh, the Republican Yvette Harrell making her second run for this seat, it's basically a rematch uh, with a Democrat social Torres Small. And the thing is, is that Team Harrell is being widely outspent in this campaign, and yet the polls suggest that they're at a statistical tie. And so money might not be the deciding factor in this campaign. Add to that that we're not going to know probably who wins that contest on election night or even necessarily the next day. As with 2018, it's going to come down to absentee ballots. But this year, there's going to be far and away more absentee ballots than even in 2018. And Algernon, we just have about a minute left, but um, the county clerk, especially in, in Donia Anna, they had so many um, absentee ballots last time that they needed to, to get counted. Do you know, are they processing those earlier as, as state law allows this time around? Right. This was partly the situation that led to the election law tune-up that allows the absent precinct board to start a little bit earlier. And so they've started qualifying those ballots um, because, you know, <laughs> After 2018, where this came down to a few thousand ballots, well, we're getting that many and more in a single day arriving by mail in Doniana County. So um, even with the earlier start, it's been probably going to take a couple of days for close races to be called. Very important to know. Algernon DeMasa with the Las Cruces Sun News. Thanks for your time. Anytime, Matt. Thank you. Before we hop off the election primer here for the show this week, we were lucky enough to get a little bit of extra time with a couple of those reporters. We're going to start with Algernon Diamasa of the Las Cruces Sun News. You just heard from him. He took a few minutes uh, extra with Matt to talk about what we can expect on Election Day as far as results coming in, what he's anticipating, what he's hearing about when we might actually know when some of these races might get called or decided Again, we hope that helps you prepare for what's going to be a week like unlike any other in election history, with maybe the exception of 2000. Um, but it will also be local races this time around that may take a day or two, maybe even longer to get final decisions on. So here again, Matt Grubbs and Algernon DeMassa. Algernon DeMassa with the Las Cruces Sun News. Thanks for taking a little bit of extra time to, to chat about the races in your district um, when we ended our, our on-air interview, we were talking about uh, issues with, uh, with absentee ballots and just sort of them taking a while uh, to be tallied. Uh, there are a lot more preps going on right now. As you mentioned, state law has been tweaked, but you're still expecting to wait um, 
hours and perhaps days for, for the results of some close races as all these ballots are counted? I would predict days. Um, in addition to the earlier start, the election law tune-up also requires that the absent precinct board, these are the volunteers that process those ballots, um, they have to quit working at 11 p.m. That's just to prevent them from getting tired. And of course, when you're more tired, more mistakes happen. And so this is really a process that's building in time to do it properly so as to avoid unnecessary challenges to the integrity of the process. Sure, and your email inbox, like a lot of reporters over the last couple of days, has seen notifications of two Republican Party lawsuits um, already over voting. You mentioned in our on-air interview that they're coming out swinging. Is that the sort of thing that, that you mean? Right. I mean, and it's interesting because when you read the actual complaints that are being filed and compare that to the tone of the press releases, it really has a different cadence. Um, I've only looked at the first of the two lawsuits myself. Uh, Michael McDevitt at the Sun News is doing a, more of a deep dive into that. But what I noticed right away is that in the, uh, the petition regarding the uh, presence of poll watchers at the uh, first stage of the process, counting the absentee, qualifying, I should say, qualifying the absentee ballots, I mean, this is really just, the court filing is just seeking clarification. These are new regulations that the legislature passed in light of the COVID-19 emergency. It was done very quickly, and so, the language of the petition is basically saying, yeah, of course, there are questions and we just want to make sure that it's enforced uniformly for fairness and for clarity. Whereas the press releases really put forward this allegation that there is wrongdoing at worst or even just uh, um, incompetent administration at best. And so some of that I think maybe is the campaign rhetoric and as well as some legitimate questions about process. The other lawsuit is um, looking into uh, how drop boxes are surveilled. Are they under the correct supervision? Do they require video monitoring as well? What are the specific things that need to be in place to make sure drop boxes are secure? Again, a legitimate question, um, not necessarily a matter of wrongdoing. But if you compare the tone of the press releases and the uh, court filings, it's, it, you get two very different messages. Sure. On the public perception, it's almost, um, are these ballots legit and, and are they secure? Does it sound to you or feel to you like um, this is groundwork for election challenges come next week? Boy, I mean, you know, I, I hope not. Um, uh, just because as it is, it's already going to be a really rough year for counting. But the Republicans have been raising a lot of questions starting in 2018 when they were impounding ballots and inspecting the process by which those ballots were qualified all the way to 2020, where there's been a very strong endorsement of going and voting in person as traditionally done and really raising every question that can be raised about the process of mail-in elections and qualifying those absentee ballots. The numbers that you've seen for um, absentee ballots are 
as robust as they were, um, I guess, in terms of, of the rate of voting in, in the primaries. Um, would, you, would you say that's a, you know, are people still sort of leaning towards absentee? Well, this year, I mean, there's just been a mountain of absentee and early voting. Um, over half a million New Mexicans, as we speak, have already um, have already filed their ballots, and uh, and so it's going to be a big turnout year as it is. Plus, it's a big turnout year in a year where we're going to see many more ballots that have been mailed in or cast early at a voting center, and so. Um, even uh, watching these results come in on election night, for those of us who sit in front of the, you know, sit on the Secretary of State's website and hit refresh every few seconds, that's all going to be different this year. Um, precinct reporting is going to be, because of so many of the ballots are going to be absentee. Um, <laughs> you know, you're not going to be looking at different precincts in quite the same way, because what really matters is going to be those absentee ballots that got mailed in or dropped off at a voting center. Sure, you could conceivably have a race leaning one way with, with in-person voting and then um, somebody presses a button and downloads those or, or in the Secretary of State's case, uploads those to her website and that race flips. Exactly, and that's the thing to watch for in terms of potential challenges because I'm sure you're going to see candidates declare themselves the election night winner asterisk pending final tally results. But I think, you know, remember in 2018, that was a race that had an apparent winner on election night and then the absentee ballots, and this was only 8,000 and change absentee ballots, changed the result of that contest. That of course is the CD2 uh, contest between Xochitl Torres Small and uh, Yvette Harrell. Well, I think you might see that in multiple contests where the person who seems to be ahead in the vote count election night does not end up actually being uh, necessarily the winner of that contest. And you'll see a lot of those upsets, I think, just based on the sheer number of absentee ballots. And an interesting tactic there is you might see some, some candidates rush forward to claim victory on election night and then um, sort of have that theoretical election high ground um, if, if those absentee ballots come in. Right, and I think the question to ask then is, well, is that meaningful when so many of the ballots are waiting to be tallied? Is it really meaningful to declare yourself the winner on election night? On the other hand, uh, if you're a candidate and you have, uh, you, you're in front of a bunch of supporters, although hopefully those watch parties will be COVID-19 safe, um, you know, you, you, you have to say something on election night. It's sort of expected. So uh, we're anticipating that there'll be candidates kind of claiming that they're ahead on election night. But really, we're going to go to bed not knowing unless uh, unless there's a real landslide, perhaps in the presidential uh, candidacy. I, I don't anticipate going to bed on election night knowing a whole lot about what the results are. Right, which is sort of antithetical to what a lot of people on both sides are feeling. They just want to be done with this. Um, it's important, I think, for folks to know that it, it takes a little bit longer to count absentee ballots. As you said, they need to be qualified, um, uh, which means they need to be, uh, they have to 
be determined that they're legit. And then there's another envelope that has to be opened. Um, and then there's, well, there are two envelopes that have to be opened. This, this whole process, it takes longer to count absentee ballots than it does um, in-person voting, doesn't it? It does. There are, there are a few steps. And the really long step is looking at that outer envelope. And this year, the outer envelope needs to have two pieces of information. The voter has to sign it. And the last four digits of the social security number of that voter need to appear on that, on that ballot. And then, yeah, there's an inner envelope where the ballot is supposed to go. And so as the, um, when they reach ballots that don't appear to be properly qualified, um, voters are supposed to have a chance when practical to rectify that situation and identify themselves so that that ballot can be identified. So there are some additional steps before they feed the qualified ballots through a machine. And this is one of the things that the Republican Party is really wanting to have people there to watch closely is to make sure that those ballots are properly qualified and ballots that have questions are not necessarily commingled with the qualified ballots before they're validated. And um, that is ostensibly the question that the Republicans are are trying to make sure is, is uh, safeguarding for the integrity of the count. Sure, sure. And you end up winnowing your, your universe, I guess, of, of ballots. You've got the ones that clearly count, and then the ones that there might be a question about that can be answered relatively quickly. And then that even smaller group of those where you're just not quite sure and you actually might have to reach out and contact the voter. Um, before we wind up, um, in 2018, Yvette Harrell sort of um, intimated on an interview with Fox News that the, that the election had been taken from her by these um, absentee ballots. Um, there was nothing abnormal about those ballots. Like you mentioned, they just hadn't been counted. She actually looked into that, though, and, and hired a, a, a group um, or some attorneys to take a look at those ballots. Whatever happened with that? She did not challenge the election result. And she has, I would say not intimated, she has stated outright and explicitly that the election was stolen from her. Most recently in a national interview with um, the conservative host, Mark Levin. Um, she's also made that claim in ads that the 2018 election was stolen from her. Um, but that has never come before a court of law where the evidence could be judged uh, on the basis of, of, you know, on that standard of evidence. Um, she did impound the ballots, which is any candidate's right to do, um, to reinspect them. And they did find some uh, anomalies. They did find some, uh, they did find some issues with some of the ballots, though nowhere near enough to uh, potentially change the outcome, which may be a factor in why they decided not to go ahead and contest the election result. However, um, that has not stopped the campaign from making this claim that the campaign was stolen, and that is the word that has been used, um, and that just appears not to be the case. Sure, sure. Another argument to go to your local newspaper to get your information and not to your local political campaign, I think, on, on, on both sides. We've, we've seen some, some stretching of the truth and, and worse from, from both sides over the years. Well, Algernon, thank you so much for your time. Um, we look forward to talking with you uh, after this election, too. Thanks. Anytime, Matt. Be safe. All right. You, too. 
And Jeffrey Plant of the Silver City Daily Press also spent a little extra time talking to Matt. Uh, One of the key issues down there has to do with the Gila River and the diversion project that was years in the making and recently uh, sort of met its demise, which frees up a lot of money for other local water projects. We've talked to Jeffrey Plant in the past. Laura Paskus of Arland has talked to him about this, and Matt wanted to find out how the the death of the diversion project, such as it is, how it's affecting uh, the scramble for some of those dollars that are, are really direly needed in that part of the state. And so here now, Matt Grubbs and Jeffrey Plant. Jeff Plant with the Silver City Daily Press. Thanks for taking a few extra minutes to join us online um, with New Mexico in focus. Uh, On air, we talked about a couple of state legislative races that you're watching. um, And uh, towards the end of our conversation, you were talking about the Gila River diversion project and uh, all all that money that's sort of socked away for potentially um, uh, local projects um, that has been hanging in the balance while the Interstate Stream Commission decides on on what to do um, and, and whether or not to try to build that diversion. Um, you've talked with Laura Paskus about this a lot on our show, or at least once on our show, I should say. Um, but that is something that people are, are talking about still down there. It, it sure is. I mean, that's, that's, that amount of money could uh, help Hurley, the town of Hurley, uh, complete their water project. That's a, a relatively small municipality here in Grant County that doesn't actually have its own water system. Uh, they've relied on the mining company, which is now Freeport McMoran, uh, for decades since the town was built uh, to supply water to the town. Uh, the mining company has said that they no longer wanna be in the business of supplying water to Hurley. And Hurley has drilled wells. They've had a lot of issues with uh, getting viable wells out there. And as always with these projects, they're more expensive than uh, expected. And they could really use uh, some of this New Mexico unit fund money to complete that project, which uh, is also was intended, um, if it had managed to get viable wells, to tie into a regional water supply project for Grant County that would uh, basically complete a circuit from Silver City to Hurley to the town of Bayard, uh, Santa Clara, and back to Silver City, uh, drawing on different parts of the aquifer. It's, uh, it's, it's really a project that would, that would mean uh, a sustainable you know, future water-wise for this area. Um, but uh, as I said, the Republican candidates in these uh, races, they, they really don't wanna lose sight of the 14,000 acre feet of Gila surface water that is technically allotted to Southwestern New Mexico and that, that issue just will not, uh, there, as I said before, there's no middle ground. Um, same with wild and scenic designation for parts of the Gila River here. No middle ground on that one either. Yeah, and you said um, that that carries a lot of sort of uh, symbolism with it. Uh, wild and scenic uh, means not mines, that sort of thing, right? Yeah, uh, Billy Billings is a uh, District 4 Grant County Commissioner, uh, and he is running for re-election. He has uh, joined the Heritage Waters Coalition, uh, and in a letter that he wrote in support of uh, the coalition, which opposes um, the designation, he said, you know, the Gila River is a working river. Um, 
it's it's got diversions along it. He, you know, he claims it's not really a free flowing river. Uh, it's a working river. The ranchers and farmers that live along it are are the ones that should have a say as to how how this river is regulated. And uh, he and other Republican candidates in these elections say that this designation is just going to add another layer of federal regulation to their lives, to their work, and they they really have dug in in opposition to this. And in fact, uh, the Heritage Waters Coalition has managed to become a, a fairly significant lobbying presence against the designation in Washington, DC. They've got a slick website, they've got a lot of support. And uh, it's important to keep in mind that of course, the agricultural community as uh, candidate James Williams in the District 28 Senate race said is 1% is of the population but they produce 100% of the food. Uh, so it may be a, a minority technically, but they're a very vocal minority. And wild and scenic designation, that's, that's something that Republicans oppose across the board. Sure. A couple of things that have, that have sort of struck me, I guess, about this. Um, one is sort of the construction. Um, I think it was in 2004 when, when Pete Domenici um, shepherded this bill through the Senate. Um, it provided a lot more money um, if you could figure out a way to build a dam or some sort of diversion on, on the Gila. Um, so there's always kind of been that money hanging out there, which is a pretty big carrot. Uh, does that play into politics down there at all? You know, the, the thing with the, the construction money is that the New Mexico entity of the Central Arizona Project, which of course is tasked with, was tasked or is still tasked with spending this money and building diversion, operating the diversion, they missed a deadline at the end of 2019 that uh, permanently lost them access to $56 million that they were planning to use to build the project. Uh, since they lost that money, uh, the entity really was, was aiming to get access to the separate New Mexico unit fund uh, to build the dam. And that was a no-go with the current Interstate Stream Commission um, which was appointed by the current governor. And without that construction money, the cost of the project, the cost of the water, the projected cost was just so high that nobody agreed to buy it. Um, the entity had, had nobody really signed on to buy this water. And whether or not the water is gonna be needed in the future, the expense of it just, it actually made the, the federal government, the US Department of the Interior, uh, it caused them to say, hey, if you don't find the money to build this by the end of 2020, uh, we're going we're gonna to kill this project. So they really didn't have a choice. And now that money is sitting there and it is, it is definitely a carrot, uh, but the entity doesn't seem willing yet to uh, give up control of it and bring on a broader group of stakeholders uh, to decide how to spend that. They're reluctant to lose the more agricultural driven uh, goals of, of the entity and, you know, maybe focus more on municipal water projects and other uh, more broadly based uh, stakeholder projects. Yeah. And then that's the other option. If you don't build a diversion, then you focus on these um, local and, and perhaps regional water projects. Also, you mentioned the, the 14,000 or so acre feet. Um, is the Gila over allocated like a lot of Western rivers? Does that water, is, is it 
so-called wet water, like we hear Laura say, or is it just on paper? Yeah, really. It, a lot of it is on paper. The, uh, the Gila River is actually one of two rivers in, I believe it's the country, that has a river master who, uh, you know, is in, is in charge of making sure everybody who has adjudicated water already gets the water that they deserve. Um, there are so many users along the Gila from New Mexico down into uh, Arizona that it's, it's hard to imagine even 14,000 acre feet being freed up every year. Uh, water that ends up in the San Carlos Reservoir, just across the border in Arizona, for example. Uh, sometimes there's water there available, technically, to farmers in the Verdant Valley, for example, but they can't get it because it's downstream. Uh, so whether or not you could actually get this 14,000 acre uh, feet of water depends on a lot of circumstances that don't always come together. If this project were built, it would, still, it would still have an underlying agreement known as the CUFA that uh, a main uh, water user downstream hasn't signed on to. So that's a sticking point that never even got addressed, actually. Man. Um, well, first of all, thanks for keeping an eye on that stuff. It's something that, that everyday people don't have the time <laughs> to really do. So we appreciate you doing that work. Um, just politically speaking, um, how does it how does it feel down there? Is it is it as contentious um, as you look at sort of the the atmosphere as what we see say on the on the evening news, either out of Albuquerque or nationally? It is. Um, of course, we're a rural uh, area down here, um, but there really is a uh, a divided feeling in the air um, between. I guess you you could divide it along agricultural mining uh, proponents and not necessarily anti-mining or anti-agricultural proponents, but more progressive, I guess, probably democratic uh, constituents down here. Um, there is uh, in fact a, a large contingent of Trump supporters. Of course, uh, we're home to one of, at least one of the members of Cowboys for Trump, uh, Otero County Commissioner Coy Griffin's group and they occasionally will ride their horses up the main street down uh, in downtown Silver City, that's uh, Bullard Street, uh, in support of Donald Trump and all things uh, Republican Party. Uh, that, that happens fairly often. We've had uh, rallies recently in Goff Park, which is sort of the central main park in the, in the downtown part of uh, Silver City. Uh, we had a Beth Harrell and a number of other Republican ca uh, candidates come and uh, give stump speeches during a, a religious rally uh, on a Sunday in, uh, in Goff Park. There was, you know, reflected sort of the national tenor of, of things. There was very little mask wearing, very little social distancing, uh, a lot of confluence of issues, you know, abortion, guns. Uh, it's a, yeah, I'd say that definitely we've got we've got a reflection of the national mood uh, in Grant County for sure. Yeah, sure. Does lastly, does CD two feel like it's going to be as close this time as it was in twenty eighteen? Absolutely. I think uh, Representative Torres Small, Socio Torres Small, has has really uh, tried very hard to sort of stay a middle of the road. Uh, uh, representative. 
she she doesn't really uh, stand for you know more progressive democratic uh, issues. She really I, I think has put a lot of effort into um, representing her entire constituency, which includes the oil patch in eastern New Mexico, uh, more progressive element in Silver City, maybe. Um, and everything in between. So, I mean, there's an urban area, Las Cruces in there. Uh, it's one of those districts that's got, uh, it, it's hard to define. It's, it's just got every, every type of constituent living in it. And Yvette Harrell, of course, is a known quantity um, since she was the uh, sitting representative before. And uh, that race is, is uh, too close to call for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, listen, thank you for taking extra time. And um, we look forward to checking in with you after the election, too. For sure. Thanks, Matt. Now's a good time before we hop off of elections to let you know about our election night plans. We know, again, it's going to be an unprecedented election night. We know a lot of focus is going to be on the national scene and the presidential race and Again, none of us here on the New Mexico and Focus team are expecting to have definitive answers really on much of anything on Tuesday night, but we want to uh, bring you what we know, bring the great analysis and context you've gotten used to as well as the results as we have them, uh, as well as a rundown of any poll problems that happen for day of voters across New Mexico. So we're inviting a slew of people to join us for a Facebook and YouTube live stream That'll start on the New Mexico in Focus and NMPBS Facebook and YouTube pages about 7 o'clock. We'll be joined by line regulars, some of the folks you've seen on this week's show and heard from, uh, political science professors, journalists. We're inviting them all to join us as they can and as their schedule allows. We also hope to have some reaction from candidates themselves, virtual watch parties, and in other ways as well. So we invite you to join us. Tune in. You can go straight to our Facebook and YouTube pages, and you'll be able to keep track of it all there. Join us as you can. Send us your thoughts on what you're seeing and experiencing on Election Day. All right. Now we're going to turn to COVID-19. We started by talking about that. We're going to return to it. Just a really scary situation that's brewing. We've been hearing for months how the fall and winter were going to be a tough time and potential for resurgence in cases we're actually seeing more cases and um, uh, than we did during the height back in the late spring. And the pinch is really being felt by hospitals in New Mexico. That is one of the primary concerns now is will they be able to handle the influx of cases, which, as we mentioned earlier, reached more than 1,000 in one single day this week. And we, have, of course, also passed the 1,000 deaths milestone this week. It is a serious situation. The governor's been talking about it. Of course, there are still debates about her restrictions and whether or not they are appropriate. But the threat, we know, is 100% real and is going to be felt and is being felt. And so we want to turn back to the line panel now for their thoughts on the COVID situation in New Mexico as it sits right now. Here's host Gene Grant. A couple of weeks ago, we talked on the line about why more voices weren't joining the chorus to warn about COVID spread. That chorus is loud now. Early this week, doctors from UNM, Presbyterian, and Loveless sounded the alarm about unsustainable caseloads that have, as predicted, found their way into hospital beds. 
Now, some 300 people are in the hospital currently with COVID-19. And Trip, we've been able to beat back the virus twice before. Something feels a little bit different, though, this time around, doesn't it? It, it does. I mean, um, when I started, started to see some of the numbers, uh, you know, they shattered, New Mexico shattered the, the single day case record a couple of weeks ago. It was up over 100, 800, and I think they had 800 uh, recently this mm-hmm. week as well. I, you know, what I thought about was that, um, that people in March, in April, maybe even earlier, were saying the fall and winter are going to be really bad for COVID. You can't mm-hmm. let your guard down. Um, this is... Um, And, you know, this is partly historical. I mean, I think about the 1918 pandemic. The second wave is what really was devastating, not the first wave. I'm not saying that's going to happen here. But for a long time, I I was waiting for that second phase. And I think we're in it now. Um, uh, And um, I know that uh, watching the El Paso numbers, it's stunning Mm -hmm. because we're so close. You know, Las Cruces and Chaparral are close. And um, they're up over a thousand. They were a couple of days. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's happening everywhere. So, I think it's also been hard for folks because we're now seven and a half months in and people right. are tired. Um, but we've got several months to go, I think. Well, there's a curfew in El Paso now, too. I mean, that just goes to show you, Christine, you know El Paso well, uh, that's for sure. And, you know, when you see the numbers here for New Mexico doing what they're doing, is it is it more worrisome for people hearing doctors talk about this or is it more effective to hear it from doctors versus I mean, Dr. Scrace is obviously a doctor, but you know what I'm saying, as opposed to an elected official? Well, Gene, unfortunately, we seem to be in quite a dilemma, quite a, an awful situation where mm-hmm. people have taken sides on how to respond to the virus. Uh, and one would think that doctors messaging a very clear and consistent message of how to engage in self responsibility and behavior and so on would take hold. But look at the National Task Force. Look at Dr. Fauci and how this current president is demeaning him and dismissing him and his expertise. So my my point that I'd like to make is how unfortunate that we have now a chasm, a divide over what I would characterize as people who think that they're advocating for the protection of individual rights Mm -hmm. versus something that's larger, that's going to take away threatening them. I would say that that's not really a case of individual rights, that as a country, we have always figured out how to merge individual rights under the umbrella of the public good. And there are a number of ways in which we have looked at governmental rules that tell us how to behave and how to uh, limit our social behavior. That should be, again, what we would try to seek. How can we merge the fact that we show self-responsibility in wearing masks, social distancing, and so on, as, as a factor in enhancing community health, in improving our ability to fight this virus, but that is a chasm, that is an ideological, or maybe not even ideological, maybe just stubbornness. Some people don't wanna be told what to do. And by golly, nobody is going to do that. Doctors, government officials, or whatever. We have got to have communication from the top, and this is where elected officials come in, including Mm -hmm. the President of the United States, sending a consistent and clear message one of communication that would lead to cooperation. 
Mm-hmm. Gabe, interesting. I've, I've, I've had this awful feeling that we are at peak mask, meaning all those who are going to be masked are masked. And those, as Christine just mentioned, who are not inclined to go there are just not going to go there no matter who's <laughs> telling them to do it. So what, you know, what does that mean for policymakers? If we're going to have a, a tough winter here, we've got questions about whether students should go home for Thanksgiving break, Christmas break. There's a lot of factors out there. What more can the governor do at this point to, to kind of get these numbers down at this point? It's a very difficult situation. Uh, mm -hmm. Our team at UNM actually has been tracking this extensively in our polling across the country. Mm -hmm. And just to put some numbers uh, to what we've already started and backing up Christine's point, when we ask folks, you know, are you wearing a mask in public covering your face to try to reduce the spread of COVID-19? One of the strongest predictors of who's wearing a mask and who isn't is your partisanship. Mm -hmm. That has more effect than just about anything else we can throw in an empirical model to analyze. And when we ask folks after the fact, hey, you just told us that you wear a mask, what's the number one reason you are doing so? Number one reason people give us is to protect myself and others. So it's a, a collective, a community-oriented ideology. We ask the folks who aren't wearing masks, what's the number one reason? They say it's my right as an American to choose if I don't wanna do it. And so I think it's that underlining ideological difference that's really filtering into people's behavior. So the governor faces a difficult reality here. You're seeing early on, I think so much pride for, for those of us in New Mexico, for how well our state was performing. But as time goes on, right, the conversation starts to shift about, hey, we need to be thinking about the economic side of this issue. We need to open up business to save small business, et cetera. And that puts the governor in a very difficult position because there's not much more she can do with her authority to push from that issue. And I would think, you know, looking forward, unfortunately, our data suggests we're going to have the same conversation when it comes around to a vaccine with a sizable uh, segment of the American and New Mexican population who are going to say, just like it's my right not to wear a mask, are gonna say it's my right not to take this vaccine. So unfortunately, we're not gonna be out of the woods on this, even when a vaccine is available. And I think it's gonna be the same underlying difference we're seeing in the context of wearing a mask. And I'll point out finally, in our data, we find that even men of color who will tell us in the survey, I know this potentially puts me in harm's way with police and security to be wearing a mask in public, I'm still doing it because I recognize the severity of COVID-19. I think that says an awful lot about where we are as a country right now. Oof, man, it sure does. That's amazing. Tripp, you know, we had hundreds gather at the Roundhouse recently to protest the governor's approach to this. Not a one of them. I shouldn't say not a one of them. There were a few masks, but certainly not the majority. Um, I, I have to ask the same question. What more can any government person do? Taking it off of Governor uh, Lujan Grisham here and just you know, system-wide, any mayor, it, it, can, can anyone really push this thing forward in your view? Or we just I, have to I, get you, it you out? Know, I, I, I honestly don't know how to respond to that question. You yeah. know, I, I, I don't know what, you know, really it's about, um, you know, how far one wants to go with like police powers or something. I, you know, I, who knows? And I'm not sure that the governor wants to go there. Mm -hmm. um, I saw that the stories about the rally and, and I just want to say, uh, kind of piggyback on what Gabe was saying, it is it's kind of extraordinary when I uh, talk to folks about, you know, wearing masks and why. And it's, it is this kind of community versus individual right. thing. And I, I saw that and I was thinking, um, as I, I read the stories, it was like these individuals go back to families and friends and stuff like this. And it is sort of like a super spreader event. We, we don't know if that particular thing has happened because outside tends to be better than inside mm -hmm. uh, as far as the, the you know, passing the, the, the virus around. 
Um, but I don't know what uh, a governor uh, can do. Now, I'll say this. I think there's a possibility that we may go into another lockdown or shutdown here in the future. That's what I was going to bring up, you know, and Gabe, let me go back to swing back to you on that. It's, or I'm sorry, Christine, sorry, I wanted to start with you on that, that one. How much do we have the, do we have the taste for that? Is that palatable? If the governor came out and said, look guys, it's going to be 10 o'clock like El Paso's doing, et cetera, et cetera. How, you know, <laughs> how does that, how does that even work at that point? I think we need some teaching moments here. And one of the things I was heartened by was the restaurant association agreeing with the governor in the spirit of compromise and trying to figure out how they could work with her and the two sides could come up with some uh, short-term solutions that seemed to satisfy both. Uh, the other thing is I think posting the watch list by the New Mexico Environmental Department uh -huh. where people then can take it on their own mm -hmm. and look up where places have reported uh, uh, virus infections and so on. That's something that people can do on their own. And does, that seem like a, does that seem like a reasonable threshold to you, by the way, the way they've got it set up? You know, if you've got a certain number of cases in two I mean, weeks, I, I'm not, that's not my expertise. Uh, but I would, just, I would just say that we've got to get the messaging across that we compromise on individual rights and co collective goodness all the time. Mm -hmm. Traffic regulations, uh, we have seatbelts requirements, we have uh, drinking laws. I mean, there's all kinds of things in our social lives that, that compromise is not an issue. And so I think we've got to break down these walls, if you will, that the president has uh, built. It's not just him, but of mm -hmm. course, exacerbates and tell people, look, the, like you guys said, these are your families. You are a member of a larger unit and take responsibility for that. Hmm. Hey, Gabe, I, I want to ask you this. What do you make of the situation that uh, befelled State Senator Jacob Candelaria, who was really hassled to the point of leaving his own home because he was critical of those who didn't wear masks? And there's a danger point, it seems to me, where if someone's going to come out and criticize those who don't wear masks, but the response is going to be threats on your life and on your family and on your home, then we're in a bad situation completely, that no one's hearing anything at that point. Yeah, I, I think it's unfortunate that we're seeing this happen in New Mexico. But keep in mind, this started months ago in other places in the country, with unfortunately security guards being shot and killed for trying right. to enforce city ordinances. So it's unfortunate that it's finally happened in New Mexico, but this tension, and I've been writing about this in my academic research for Brookings, for Washington Post and others for months, mm -hmm. that this tension point was wearing of masks. And for whatever reason, that has been the tip of the spear in terms of uh, jurisdictions trying to impose curfews and other policies to reduce the spread and a wide segment of the population that is, is just pushing back extensively on this because they don't want to have their, their individual rights violated. And yeah. I'll say, if you look at the data on the tracing in New Mexico, a couple of things stick out. It looks like the spreads are due primarily to drinking um, at, at a brewery or a restaurant, going out on a social activity, traveling out of state, or increasingly small parties within individuals' homes. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the data, you say, well, how do we target that? Limit people from traveling out of state, do closures like we're talking about and all these things in terms of the restaurants. 
But the toughest thing is, as we come around the holidays and you've got Thanksgiving and you've got Christmas around the corner, mm-hmm. how do you prevent individuals from having get-togethers of their family? Such a big cultural dynamic for so many New Mexicans. That's, That's right. What me the most that if I'm a policymaker, how do you exactly tackle it? That's a good point. Thank you all three for your thoughts this week. We look forward to hopefully seeing you, some of you, on election night as we gather virtually. You can find that conversation on our New Mexico In Focus Facebook page. Before we go, we want to share some of the press briefing that doctors from UNM, Presbyterian, and Loveless held earlier this week, especially the thoughts they shared on staffing levels, hospital capacity, and how New Mexicans should react to the latest numbers. And as Gene mentioned, we sat in on a meeting earlier this week with hospital officials to directly talk about the situation for hospitals right now. And we want to bring you part of that uh, right now as we hear from Presbyterian, Loveless, and UNMH uh, about their situation. Bottom line, as you're going to hear, is they are okay right now, but the cases as they are progressing in the last couple weeks is untenable and unsustainable for them. And some hard decisions are may have to be made if we can't stem the tide and curb the uh, drastic increase in COVID cases. And it's no small matter here. We're talking about having to make decisions about who gets oxygen. Um, we're talking about beds and uh, just not the, enough of them to go around in the hospital. And health professionals are doing all they can to avoid having to make those tough decisions, but we wanted to get a little bit more about their planning for this and what we could be looking at realistically if we can't turn this thing around and do it soon. So here now is an excerpt of that meeting with hospital officials here in New Mexico. It's clear that everyone's tired. The healthcare workforce is tired. People are tired. Uh, This is not easy, particularly Uh, doing things that are contrary to our human nature, uh, which includes social distancing and not spending time uh, with the people that are important to us. Um, But we are in the middle of a relatively significant surge of patients. And now more than ever, we really need to double down on those, those simple measures that we know are going to make a difference. And you've heard them many times, wearing masks, staying physically distant from people, avoiding mass gatherings, washing our hands, and so forth. Um, This is the time where we can do everything in our personal power uh, to protect those that we love, protect community members, protect vulnerable populations. Uh, So even though we've been at this for a while, we need to keep at it. Um, But we also need to recognize that uh, the healthcare delivery system in the Albuquerque metro area and in New Mexico is prepared uh, for this. We are uh, continuing to cooperate extensively uh, to make sure that patients are kept safe, that they have a place to receive care, uh, that ongoing chronic health conditions can be managed. Um, but we need everyone's help to continue to do so. We've watched our behavior in the state, and we know when it gets like this, people do pay attention, and you see the the case rate roll over and it start to come back down. And so that's what I believe will happen because I think folks are listening um, and want to care for one another. Um, if it continued at its current rate uh, for a couple months, it would be catastrophic. 
Um, there, there would be no beds in the hospitals. If you got in a car wreck, there'd be no place for you to go. Um, if you needed to deliver a baby, there may not be a bed in the hospital for you. I mean, it, it really, um, if it continued at this current velocity with no rollover, with no uh, tempering back down and coming back down, it, it, it's hard to describe how catastrophic that is. Remember that this disease um, spreads very quickly um, and we're not, it's not a, a linear curve, but it's, it gets steeper and steeper. And so um, it's kind of a doubling idea, right? If you double two, that's four. If you double 2,000, that's 4,000, right? And then 8,000 and 16,000. And so once you get large numbers and you start doubling them in a week or so, um, it's just catastrophic. So I'm not sure if that's what you're looking for, but, but we, we cannot as a community allow that to happen. Um, we really all have to, to get in this together. Um, I think that people are gonna start recognizing the risk if they are, you have not, and, and we'll see people change their behaviors. We have brought in uh, a number of uh, outside or what we would call agency staff uh, to help uh, support uh, and bolster our workforce. So we've been doing that since, uh, since March. There's, there's one really important caveat I wanna to put to this. If we continue the current trend we have in our state for another month, we will not have enough healthcare workers. There will not be enough hospital beds. If you look at the numbers and don't assume that we roll over on those numbers and become to come down, um, this will grow to a point where I don't think anyone can, um, can take care of them. So that's going back to what you said, Dr. Pitcher, um, we have to all pull together. And if we all pull together today, um, then we will all be okay. Um, if we wait two weeks, three weeks, four weeks for any changes, we're not gonna be okay. And there's no, not enough staff uh, anywhere uh, that will be able to get us out of that, get us out of that. So I think that's a really important, um, a really important thing. All right, that's about it for the show this week. We're going to leave you with some thoughts from Gene Grant on the importance of voting and making yourself and your voice heard at the polls. We encourage you to do that and to do it safely. Um, and there are lots of ways. Um, that you can do that safely. Poll workers are doing all they can. Encourage everybody wear masks and to take care of yourself as you're doing that. Before we go, I want to remind you, you can keep up with the show throughout the week in a lot of different ways. We are there on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, on Instagram. Join us there. Let us know what you're seeing, what you're hearing. Uh, we'd always love to hear from you, and we'll keep you up to date on what we're working on as well. And again, remind you to join us Tuesday night starting at 7 o'clock. Facebook Live on YouTube will have it, a live stream with lots of local reaction and analysis. But again, it's Halloween weekend. We hope however you celebrate the holiday, if you do, that you will do it safely. And please stay healthy, stay safe, and we will be back next week. So what's it going to be come next Wednesday morning for you? I'm talking to whoever happens to be watching this, who at this point is still thinking about not voting. Yeah, not voting is a right and a vote of sorts. But to me, there are times in our nation's history and in an American voters' lifetime, more importantly, when sitting something out for whatever reason or grudge is something you don't want to sit with starting Wednesday morning or whenever the final tally comes in, especially if it doesn't turn out the way you wanted. Look, we ask a lot of our elected folk Tasking ourselves to be a loud and sure voice for an outcome big enough that can be trusted is not asking too much of our time or patience with the system. Think about it.